0: How's it going, folks? Welcome to the show. We've been going through a synchronized study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And last time we found out that while John the Baptist was in prison, big surprise to find out that King Herod had become to realize that John was a righteous and holy man. Pretty big deal. Even though his message confused him a little bit and was hard to bear. It was a message that King Herod listened to gladly. But Herodias... That's the woman that King Herod was slipping around with. She wanted John dead for exposing publicly the affair that she was having with King Herod. But King Herod wouldn't kill him because not only was he afraid of the public backlash, he himself was beginning to realize that John was a good guy. But then on Herod's birthday, a young woman danced before the king and his court. And when it was finished, Herod was all caught up in the merriment of the event and promised her anything she wanted, anything. Well, the dancer was Herodias' daughter. So after consulting with her mother, the dancer requested the head of John the Baptist on a silver platter. The king was grieved and didn't want to do that, but because of his public oath, he would back himself into a corner. So he ordered for the head of John the Baptist and it was brought to this young girl on a silver platter and she took it to her mother. But afterwards, Herod became alarmed by the recent reports of Jesus because Jesus was no longer just healing people and teaching controversial messages. He was now casting out as many as 6,000 demons at a time with a single command, raising people up from the dead and altering the weather. With barely a word, demons fled, storms were silenced, and death was reversed. So Herod and his court pondered over who this guy Jesus was. Strange that no one believed that he was who he said he was, but they did believe in the reports of the miracles, so they pondered over it. Many of them, including the king, began to wonder if this wasn't John the Baptist raised from the dead. Then they went from that theory to thinking that he might be the Old Testament prophet Elijah raised from the dead because of the prophecy recorded in Malachi chapter 4. And then they went from thinking that to thinking, well, no, it's not Elijah, but it is some kind of prophet that's like him. One of those Old Testament prophets. The theories were endless and Herod desired to see him to get to the bottom of this. Never made any commands to see him, probably because he didn't have the guts to do that and who could blame him, but he did want to see him. Meanwhile, Jesus and the twelve apostles, along with all the other disciples, they went to an isolated place to relax and take a break from everything, just for a little while. But all the people wouldn't have it. They followed Jesus everywhere he went. And when Jesus and the others crossed the Sea of Galilee, everybody saw it and ran on foot all the way around it to meet him on the other side. And Jesus felt sorry for them, so he welcomed them. And he healed them of various diseases and taught them about the kingdom of God. But as it got late, the disciples asked Jesus, Would you send this crowd along their way? Because it's getting late, and they need to be seeking lodging for themselves before it gets too dark, and besides, they need to get something to eat, as do we. But Jesus said, Don't send them away. You feed them. <laughs> huh? With what? Oh, well, we've got 40 bucks, and that's not enough to buy this crowd enough to eat. Then Peter's brother Andrew said, Well there is a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what's that compared to this crowd of 5,000 plus? And Peter said, yeah. So I guess it's going into town to buy 40 bucks worth of bread, huh? But Jesus said, how many barley loaves are there? Go check that out. So they did. And they came back and said, yep, five barley loaves and two fish. Jesus said, bring them here and make everyone sit down. So they did. Everybody sat down. Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven, thanked the Father, and then blessed the five loaves and the two fish and then broke them apart and handed them out to the disciples to pass out to the crowd. Funny thing, though, as Jesus continued doing this, he never ran out of bread or fish. He kept breaking it apart to the extent that everyone in the entire crowd had more than enough to eat because when everybody was finished, there were 12 baskets of leftovers collected. Well, the crowd, after being gorged, were really impressed with this, so they planned to take Jesus and make him their king. Now, while that sounds like a pretty good idea, Jesus wouldn't let them do it because they still didn't get who he was. Sure, they wanted to make him king, but not as their Messiah, not as the Son of God, but as whoever they thought he was, some cool prophet or something. So Jesus wouldn't let them do that, so he sent his disciples on ahead of him and told them, get in the boat, go to the other side, I'll meet up with you later so they did jesus sent away the crowds and managed to get away by himself up to the slope to be alone to pray to the father needed some alone time with the father well by this time it's between 3 a.m and 6 a.m and the disciples are having problems getting to the other side of the sea they made it to about halfway but the winds and the currents came up to fight against them and it was getting ugly but as they continued rowing Suddenly, out of nowhere, they spotted what looked like a man walking alongside their boat on the water. It freaked them out. They said, it's a ghost. But then suddenly they heard a voice from this man that sounded like Jesus's voice. And it said, hey, it's me. Don't be afraid. Be of good cheer. Then Peter said, Lord, if that's you, command me to come out on the water with you and walk toward you. And Jesus said, come on. So Peter jumped out and actually walked on the water too, folks. But then Peter looked away from Jesus just for a moment and saw all of the waves and felt the winds. So he immediately began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. But then Jesus grabbed him and said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So then both Peter and Jesus got into the boat. The winds immediately ceased, which always freaks me out when I read that. And then everyone in the boat bowed down and said to him, truly, you are the son of God. But what they didn't notice As they were bowing down, the boat was suddenly at the shore to where they had been rowing. Which is kind of weird, folks, because when Jesus got into the boat, they were in the middle of the sea. Pretty spooky stuff. Jesus altering space-time. They just made a little trip through hyperspace without even knowing it. They were in the middle of the sea, and then in the twinkling of an eye, they were at the shore. Well, when they got there, by this time, it's probably between 4 and 5 a.m. by now. But everyone from all the surrounding communities were standing there on the shore waiting for them. Again. But a different crowd, not the crowd that Jesus left who were fed, but a different crowd altogether. And like I said, folks, this is around five in the morning, which is just incredible. So Jesus went with them from community to community and healed their sick, restored limbs and taught about the kingdom of God. And that's where we left off last time, folks. Well, what do you suppose the people who were fed the night before are doing about this time, folks? They ought to be waking up about this time and looking for Jesus. And this is recorded by John in John chapter six, verses 22 to 71. It says that the next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except for the one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the other boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. In other words, there were only two small boats there the night before when Jesus sent the disciples away. They took one of them, leaving the other boat behind. Well, now it's the next morning. They know Jesus is gone, but the remaining boat's still there. So while they're standing there perplexed over this, continuing on verse 23, it says some other boats from Tiberias had come in near the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So the people, finding that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into these small boats that just arrived and came to Capernaum looking for Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the lake, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now notice how Jesus responds. He doesn't say, well, I walked on the water. You should have seen it. It was awesome. No, he doesn't do that. He completely ignores their question and says, I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, you have been searching for me not because you saw the miracles and the signs, but because you were fed with the loaves and were filled and satisfied. Labor not for the food which perishes, but for that food which endures unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give you. For him has God the Father sealed. Now the word sealed there." He's saying that the Father has given the Son of Man his seal of approval. He's been sealed showing that he has the Father's endorsement on him, his authorship. And notice he told them, stop working for food that perishes. Instead, work for food that gives everlasting life. This is similar to what he told the woman at the well. Remember, he told them all who drink of this water will be thirsty again. But the water I'll give you will spring up for eternal life. So this is the same concept, same symbology. Stop working for food that perishes. But instead, work for food that endures into eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you. So they respond in verse 28 and say, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Boy, that's an open-ended question. (laughs) Wouldn't you be a little afraid to ask the Lord that question? What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Look at Jesus' response here. He tells them in verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe on him whom he sent. And folks, that covers everything, whether you're talking about salvation or anything else. If you're concerned about what you're supposed to be doing, what must you do to be doing what God wants you to do, all of that falls into place when you believe on the one whom the Father sent. So what does it really mean to believe on the one whom the Father sent? Well, in our English Bibles, the word believe comes from the Greek word that means to cling to, to rely upon, to trust in, to adhere to, basically hanging everything on Christ. You do that, everything else falls into place. So you don't have to get bogged down into a checklist. But in this context, they're asking him how to get that food that he spoke of earlier. The food that gives everlasting life. What must we do to get that? So Jesus tells them, this is the work of God that you believe on him who he sent. Now you would think, folks, that that answer would bring a big sigh of relief. I mean, wouldn't you rather hear that than a long list of pre-guidelines, rules and regulations, or religious formula? I like Jesus's answer. It's simple and to the point. But apparently it went over their heads because this immediately starts a debate concerning Jesus's authority. And folks, we're going to spend some special time on this chapter because Jesus is fixing to get pretty deep. We get down to about verse 44 and we're going to try to unravel a very big paradox. But what Jesus just told them went over their heads because they immediately start this debate concerning Jesus's authority And they said, according to verse 30, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And then they even give them an example of the kind of work they're looking for. They said, our forefathers, this is in verse 31, our forefathers ate the manna in the wilderness as the scripture says. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. He as in Moses, folks, they're comparing him to Moses. You know, hey, this is what he did. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. The manna in the wilderness. What work do you perform? And real quick to catch up, this business of the manna is in Exodus chapter 16. This is during the wilderness wanderings after Israel had been set free from Egyptian slavery, after the parting of the Red Sea, after they forfeited their right to enter the promised land, and they're wandering around for 40 years. They're grumbling about being hungry and wishing for death and saying things like, why did God bring us out of Egypt just so we can starve to death out here? So starting in Exodus chapter 16, verse 11, it says, The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the murmurings of the Israelites, Therefore speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and between the two evenings you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So in the evening quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay round about the camp. And when the dew had gone, behold, upon the face of the wilderness there lay a fine, round, flake-like thing, as fine as hoarfrost on the ground. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, Manna? which translated into English means, what's this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Well, anyway, God continued this practice, folks, for the next 40 years until the next generation went into the promised land. And for symbolic purposes, he set up how he wanted them to collect the bread. First of all, everybody had to go out and collect it for themselves. You couldn't collect it for somebody else. You had to get your own and you had to get it every day. So you couldn't stockpile it for a week. You had to go out there every morning and collect it for every day. With the exception of the sixth day of the week, on the sixth day you could get twice as much to keep from having to go out on the Sabbath day to get it. But the word manna became their derogatory word for this stuff. It wasn't God's word for it. God called it bread. But they called it manna. So anyway, back to John chapter 6 verse 31. They said to Jesus, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our forefathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As the scripture says, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread forever. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. Although you have seen me, you still don't believe me. But all whom the Father gives to me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. What in the world does he mean by that, folks? All whom my Father gives to me. Let's keep reading. All whom my Father gives to me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the father's will, that of all which he has given to me, I should lose nothing. There it is again, folks, of all which the father has given me. What in the world is he talking about? From the feel of this, we can tell that he's talking about those who have come to Christ, those who are saved, those who do believe in him. But why does he speak of them as those whom the father has given to him? Isn't that kind of backwards? We normally think of the Son as the Father's gift to us. But right here, Jesus is speaking of us as given to him by his Father. When did that happen, and how? Jesus will answer that question for us by the time we get to verse 44, but what he says in verse 44 that explains this opens a Pandora's box to another plethora of questions, so we're going to keep reading until we get there so we can slow down and take a real close look at it. So let's back up to verse 38. Jesus said, For I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will, that of all which he has given to me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Folks, we'll cover what he means by the last day, but for now, let's keep moving. Jesus says, This is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Greek word there used for seas, it's not talking about vision or eyesight, it's speaking of comprehension, understanding, and seeing with the eyes of faith. In other words, it's the Father's will that everyone which understands who the Son is, why he came, and what he did on their behalf, and believes on him for that, it's the Father's will that those people will have everlasting life. But then the Jews murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. I don't forget, folks, that when John the Gospel writer says the Jews, he means the Jewish religious leaders, the leadership. So while this debate started with the group who were fed the night before, also listening in at this point are some Jewish religious leaders. And after Jesus said what he said, they murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we both know? How is it then that he says, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said, Murmur not amongst yourselves. No man can come to me unless the Father which has sent me draws him to me. And there it is, folks. Verse 44 of John chapter 6, one of the most quoted and misunderstood verses in the Bible. Let's spend some special time on this one because it's a cause for lots of controversy, lots of confusion, lots of false doctrine. No man can come to me unless the Father which sent me draws him to me. Folks, earlier, Jesus referred to those who come to him as those whom the Father has given to him. Remember? That's in verse 39. He also said in verse 37 that whomever the Father gives to him shall come to him. And it's because of those two statements in verses 37 and 39 that many believe that those who come to him are the same people as those who are drawn to him in verse 44. Let's take a closer look at that. Where does it say that being drawn to Christ is the same thing as coming to Christ? If they were the same thing, then Jesus wouldn't have separated them by clearly saying in verse 44 that no man can come to him unless the Father draws them to him, right? But wait a minute, Josh, I'm confused. Didn't Jesus just say that all those whom the Father gives to him will come to him? Yes, but where does it say that the Father giving people to Christ is the same thing as the Father drawing people to Christ? People assume that, and I can understand why, but with that assumption comes a lot of doctrinal errors that seriously twist up the rest of the Bible. Being given to Christ and being drawn to Christ are not the same thing, just as being drawn to Christ and coming to Christ are not the same thing. If they were, then Jesus wouldn't have said what he said in verse 44. See, coming to Christ is something that we do in response to being drawn, which is something that the Father does. The Father does the drawing, we do the coming. Now, the easy mistake a lot of us make is that we assume that since the Father is the one doing the drawing, we connect that with what Jesus said earlier about us being given to Jesus by his Father. But read the fine print. Look at every single word. In the passages where Jesus speaks of those given to him by his Father, he always references them as those who have either come to him or will come to him. Nothing in there about being drawn. Being given and being drawn are not the same thing. He said in verse 37, that whomever the Father gives to him shall come to him. In verse 39, he said, all those whom the Father has given to him, he shall lose nothing. So with this comes the obvious question. Do people come to Christ because the Father has given them to his Son? Or does the Father give them to his Son because they came to Christ? Up until now, we've been hearing about how no one can ever see the kingdom of God unless they're first born again, right? And rebirth comes from believing in Jesus Christ and trusting and relying on his work at the cross. So a person is born again when they come to Christ and allow his work on the cross to pay for their sins. And that's not new. We've seen plenty of verses that say that since we got started in the gospels and we'll see it over and over again. And later on Jesus will tell us point blank that no man can get to heaven, no man can get to the Father except through the Son, except through him. So the way to the Father, the way to heaven is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only. That much we know. But then we get this whammy here in verse 44. Jesus says, no man can come to me unless the father draws them to me. So what in the world does that mean? Does that mean that all people who never get saved were never drawn to Christ by the father? That's not what it says, but a lot of people infer that after reading this verse. Are they right? I don't know. Let's look at it. It's from this verse that we get the phrase being led to Christ. The phrase being led to Christ is somewhat of a cliché for Christians. I was led to Christ, which is true. Don't get me wrong. That's what verse 44 is telling us, that all of us who got saved were first led to Christ by the Father. That's a fact. But being led to Christ isn't what gets you saved. It's accepting Christ's work on the cross to pay for your sins that saves you, right? We carry that line around like a badge of honor, as though only Christians are led to Christ. It smudges over the reality that, in fact, the Father leads everyone to Christ. Now, before you jump all over me for saying that, let's look at the scripture. 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 tells us that it's the Lord's will that none should perish and that all should come to repentance. Well, if that's true, then the Father cannot be selective about who he leads to his son, can he? Now, he is selective about who he gives to his son, but not about who he leads to his son. Not if he really means what he says when he says he doesn't want anyone to perish, but wants all to come to repentance. But a lot of people assume that the father is selective about who he leads because Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the father draws them to me. And they combine this verse with what Jesus said about those being given to him by his father. And there's several verses in Romans and Ephesians that talk about us being predestined before the foundation of the world. And we'll look at those here in a minute. But here's where people are messing up with this verse, folks. Being led to Christ and accepting Christ are two separate things. They're not the same thing. The Father can lead you to Christ. And because of your free will, you can choose to reject him when you get there. There's no place in the Bible where it says that when the Father leads someone to Christ, they can't say no. If anything, it says just the opposite. A lot of people do say no, like the Pharisees who accused Jesus of being demon-possessed, or the people who love darkness more than the light that Jesus referred to in John chapter 3. So when Jesus said, no man can come to me unless the Father draws them to me, he's not saying that the Father is sitting up there drawing some people to Christ while not drawing others. What he's saying is that a person is unable to come to Christ without the father drawing them first. He's saying that the ability of a person to recognize within themselves the need to come to Christ, it's an ability that the father has to give them because nobody has it within themselves. Romans chapter one tells us that no one seeks out God, not even one. The father has to bring that about first. That's what this is about. Accepting Christ is what saves you. But being led to Christ is what enables you to accept him. They're two separate events. Not everyone accepts Christ, but everyone will be led to Christ. And the proof of that is in verse 33. Let's back up to verse 33 and look at it. In verse 33, Jesus said that the bread of God is he who comes down out of heaven and gives life to who? To the world. Who all does that include? Everyone. Not just Christians, but everyone. It's a gift to everybody, the whole world. Now, does that mean everyone is saved? No, because a gift is something that has to be accepted. In verse 35, Jesus said, he who comes to me will never be hungry. He didn't say that the whole world would never be hungry. The bread of God is a gift to the whole world, but only those who pick it up will receive that gift. It's just like the manna. Everybody has to get their own. Here's how all this works, folks. The whole world has a debt of sin that they owe to the Father. That debt is so big that nobody in the world is capable of paying off that debt. Nobody. It must be paid, but no one can pay it. But interestingly enough, God will allow us to transfer our balance over to someone else who can pay it. And the only one who can pay it and did is his son. There's no snags, no catches, no fine print, no requirements. Everybody's been pre-approved. Talk about a sure thing, folks. The one who is owed the debt is also the one who's authorized the balance transfer in advance. And the one now taking on our debt is the son of the one who is owed the debt. That's a sure thing, folks. But you have to be the one to make the balance transfer. The father endorses it. The father authorizes it. He approves it. And he activates it. But only with your approval. So even though the bread of life is a gift to the entire world, according to verse 33, Jesus points out in verse 35 that it's only those who come to him who will never be hungry. But see, here's the problem. We're all born in debt and none of us know it. We either don't know it or don't want to know it. So that's why Jesus said that no one is able to come to me unless the Father draws them to me. And because it's the Lord's will that none should perish and that all should come to repentance, the Father leads every single person to Christ. Everyone, but not everyone accepts Christ when they're led to him, but of those who do accept Christ after they're led to him, then, then the father gives you to the son. That's when he gives you to the son. He draws everyone to Christ. Everyone either accepts Christ or rejects Christ. Those who accept Christ are then given to the son by the father. Scripture, Josh, scripture. Where's the scripture that proves that? We're fixing to cover that. Hold on. The Father leads, you either accept or reject. If you accept, then the Father gives you to the Son. Now, your act of accepting that balance transfer takes place inside the time domain, but the Father's not bound to any of that. Time is a physical property that God himself created. The Creator's not bound to his creation. And it turns out that the Father's act of leading you to his Son and then giving you to his Son after you've accepted him, all of that is performed by the Father outside the boundaries of the time domain. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 says that the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That phrase, folks, before the foundation of the world, is a famous title that's given in the Bible for a period of time in which there was no time. Because it was before the creation. Time itself is a physical property. It's part of the creation. So your sin debt was transferred over to the cross even before the creation. And these verses tell us that the Father blessed us in Christ, which means he performed the balance transfer and chose us in Christ, which means he gave us to his son. And all this happened before the foundation of the world. But guess what, folks? It doesn't stop there. Something else happened during this famous period of non-time, and it's mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. In that letter, Peter's addressing some folks that have already accepted that balance transfer, but check this out. He tells them, quote, You were purchased with the precious blood of Christ the Messiah, like that of a sacrificial lamb without blemish or spot. And he was foreordained and predestined before the foundation of the world. Folks, do you see... What happened? The pre-human Jesus, the Word, and the Father, they conspired together before they ever built their creation and prepared every last detail of its redemption before ever getting it started. Every detail of the cross where it would stand, how long Jesus would hang there, who would nail the nails in his hands, and every last detail of all human history surrounding that event they timelessly mapped out in detail before they even came close to beginning what took place in Genesis 1.1. But then after weaving the cross into human history, then they mapped out every single minute event that would draw every single person into accepting that balance transfer. And they imposed every single effort that they could impose without violating man's free will so that ultimately the choice would always be left up to them. But just like programmers coding a software program before it goes online, they scrutinized and intervened in every single human life that ever lived before the earth, the universe, and time itself was even born. So that with their preparations for the cross, knowing all that it would cover, knowing all about Satan's insanity before he was even created, knowing all about everything, they set it all up like a software package before clicking run program. People often ask, if God is in control, then why does he allow suffering? Well, I'll give you a tougher question than that. If the father knew that his creation would cost him his son before he created it, then why did he create it? And don't forget the son created it too. John chapter one told us that if the son knew that his creation would cost him the position that he had, then why did he create it? I've heard it said by many people, and I agree completely, that we'll spend eternity in heaven looking at the holes in Jesus' hands and never fully understand why he did it. The quick and easy answer is because he loved us. But that's so easy to say, and yet it's really impossible to comprehend when you consider who we are in comparison to who he is, and when you consider what both the Father and the Son gave up in spite of what we are. And they weren't backed into a corner, folks, and forced to do this, as though Satan's interference and sin itself was an accident that caught them by surprise. We're learning right here in these controversial passages that all of this was preordained outside time before the foundation of the world. So right here in John chapter 6, when Jesus tells them in verse 37, All whom my Father gives to me will come to me. He can say that, Because he was with the Father before the foundation of the world, outside time, when he saw everyone throughout human history who accepted that balance transfer and had their debt transferred over. He was with the Father when it all happened. He was with the Father outside time before the foundation of the world when it happened. Now the acceptance of Christ, everyone who accepted Christ, did so from their perspectives inside the time domain. But to the Son and the Father who were outside time before the foundation of the world, that was when Jesus received us from his Father. And it was only those who throughout history accepted Jesus that the Father chose to give to his Son. So that's how Jesus can say, all whom my Father gives to me will come to me. You see, these paradoxes and these controversies evaporate once you realize you're talking about an event from the different perspectives around the time domain. What happened first, God choosing me or me choosing God? Well, that all depends on which side of the time domain you're asking. From inside the time domain, which is where we are, God chose me before I chose him. The scriptures clearly state that the Father chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world, and the foundation of the world precedes me by at least 6,000 years. So clearly, God chose me before I chose him. But that's from my perspective. From God's side of the time domain, which is outside and independent of time, I chose him first. How do I know that? Because God couldn't have chosen me if I hadn't been in Christ. Because that's what it says he did. It says he chose us in Christ. But he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. But Josh, that doesn't make any sense. I wasn't in Christ before the foundation of the world. Well, so what? Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet either. But when you start talking about what's before, and after, and in between, those are all markers with inside linear time. God's outside of all that. God didn't have to wait until the 20th or 21st century to make you reborn in the Holy Spirit. You did. Because you're trapped inside linear time. And so is Jesus, right here in John chapter 6. He wasn't always trapped inside time. He used to be with the Father where it was timeless. But now... His personal memories of that are just like the memories of the past, because Jesus in his humanity existed inside time. So in verse 39, he refers to when we were given to him as an event that happened in the past. He says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should not lose any of all that he has given me, past tense. He's remembering when he received us as gifts from his father before the foundation of the world. But then look at verse 37. There, he refers to us as being given to him presently and continually. It's because he remembers that we were given to him from the father when our sin debt was transferred over to the cross. Well, Jesus right here in John chapter six is inside time and he knows that event is coming across itself. And then all of the people throughout history who will accept that work as payment for their sins. And with each person who accepts it, they are then chosen by his father outside time and given to the Son before the foundation of the world. So in verse 37, he says, All whom my Father gives to me will come to me. Will, as in the next 2,000 years. How does he know that? Because he saw it happen when he was outside time preparing for the earth's redemption before the foundation of the world. All right, folks, now that we've spent lots of time going through the physics of time and all the paradoxes of John chapter 6, let's back up to about old... Verse 30, Jesus is speaking to the same group of people who he fed the night before with the five loaves and the two fish. They sought Jesus out and he told them, you guys didn't come looking for me because of the miracles that were performed last night. You came because you were filled and satisfied. Don't work after food that perishes. Instead, work for food that will give you eternal life. So they asked him, well, what work should we be doing to get the food that gives eternal life? So Jesus said, here it is. This is the work. It's to believe on him whom the father sent. So they said, Oh yeah, well, what works do you perform? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert according to Exodus 16. Moses gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So Jesus said, No, it wasn't Moses. It was my father. And it's my father now who's giving you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said, Lord, give us this bread forever. Then Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. And he who believes on me will never be thirsty. And although you've seen me, you still don't believe me. But all whom the Father gives to me shall come to me. And him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Let's don't gloss over that promise, folks. Him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Another way of saying that could be, I will by no means cast out. I will in no way cast out. It's a double negative to really drive the point home. I will Absolutely not cast out. So with that promise, let me ask you a question. Is it possible for you to screw things up enough so that you could lose your salvation? By no means, he said. That includes your means. If you had the means to lose your salvation, then Jesus couldn't have said what he just said. See, from outside time, before the foundation of the world, when the Father looked at you, you were either in Christ or you weren't. So the father either gave you to the son or he didn't. He didn't give you to the son and then take you back depending on your level of faith persistency inside the time domain. You were either in Christ or you weren't. So if you can be saved and then later on lose your salvation for whatever reason, then Jesus just told a lie because he said, him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Jesus just put himself in a corner. He didn't leave an escape route. No ifs, ands, or buts. Let's keep moving. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing. Folks, do you notice where Jesus is putting the responsibility of your salvation? Notice who's responsible? He is. Jesus says, it's the Father's will that I should not lose any of all that he's given me. It's in his hands, not ours. But Josh, what about future sin? I can see my past sins being forgiven, but what about future sin? Are you saying that all of that's been forgiven too in advance? How's that possible? Well, let me ask you this. How many of your sins were still in the future before the foundation of the world when the Father gave you to the Son? All of them. And it was all put in the hands of the Son anyway, so you can't lose your salvation. Now, you can lose rewards in the coming kingdom for disobedience while you're still here. If you're really disobedient, you set yourself up for some really tough correcting lessons from the Father while you're still here on the earth. And those don't feel good. And if you're really, really stubborn, completely ignoring the Father, continually being disobedient, then... When you get to the judgment seat of Christ for rewards, not only will you not receive any rewards, you might even be turned away and excluded from all of the opening celebrations and parties when he reigns in the kingdom. But the threat of hell is no longer an issue. That's dealt with, done for, no longer a threat if you're in Christ because the Father has put all of that responsibility of keeping you out of hell into the hands of the Son, not your hands, Jesus' hands. Jesus is saying all of this to the very same people who were just fed by the five loaves and the two fish the night before. Remember how those five loaves and two fish were symbolically representing all those whom the Father has given to the Son? Remember what happened? He took them and looked up to heaven and thanked the Father for them and then blessed them. And then when it was all over, he commanded his disciples to go pick up all of the fragments so that nothing shall be lost. And when they had collected all the fragments, it filled up 12 baskets, symbolizing the kingdom. That was the whole symbolic setup for what Jesus is getting into here. He's telling them, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He says, this is the father's will, which has sent me that of all which he's given to me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day, the last day. What's he getting into there? Obviously, he's talking about the resurrection, but what does he mean by the last day? Well, Jesus is talking about the day in which all of us receive the final upgrade of our hardware. All of us are encased in hardware, but the real you is software, and that software is eternal. Now when your hardware stops running, your software is immediately uploaded into heaven. Now what heaven is using for hardware to embody your software is something that we don't know much about. But we do know it's similar to our old hardware so that it's still us. It still looks like us. And there's scripture that proves that later on when the disciples stumble upon Jesus having a secret meeting with Moses and Elijah. They knew who they were. They were recognizable. But this new hardware is upgraded without the flaws and imperfections of the old hardware. But as cool as that is... That's not our resurrection hardware. The new hardware that you get when you get to heaven, even though it's more advanced, it's to be replaced with even newer hardware, with even more upgrades on a specific day that the Bible calls the last day. And that is the resurrection. And the last day is not some symbolic mystic title. It's a literally scheduled point in time that's coming Turn to First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. This is where Paul tells the Thessalonian Christians about what happens on the last day. Verse 13, he tells them, I would not have you to be ignorant, brothers, about those who fall asleep in death, so that you don't grieve for them as the rest do who have no hope beyond the grave. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, we also know that those who have fallen asleep in Christ will God bring with him. For this we declare to you by the Lord's own word, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall in no way proceed into his presence before those who have previously fallen asleep in Christ. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, accompanied with the voice of the archangel and with the blast of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, folks, notice the order here, and this is really important. Some people believe in a ridiculous doctrine called soul sleep. This doctrine teaches that Christians are unconscious between their physical death and their resurrection on the last day. Baloney. Look at what it says. Look at the order here. It says the Lord will bring with him all those who have previously fallen asleep in Christ. In other words, they're not unconscious. They're up and about, living and well aware of what's going on. They're not floating around in some state of limbo. They've got their own hardware. And it says when the Lord comes on this famous day, he brings them with him. In other words, they were with him in heaven. And now he's bringing them with him from heaven. Not the grave, but from heaven. They're alive and well, and they come with the Lord as he descends from heaven with a shout, accompanied with the voice of the archangel and with the blast of the trumpet of God. And then... Then, all those who have previously died in Christ, who are with the Lord as he's coming down, then they are given even newer hardware, the resurrection hardware. They already had new hardware given to them since they had died, but that hardware wasn't their resurrection hardware. The resurrection hardware they get here on the last day. And then right after that, probably no more than a millisecond, verse 17 tells us that we, the living ones who remain on the earth, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the lord that's when we those of us that are still alive on the planet earth get our resurrection bodies now this strange event called the last day is the day that christians typically call the day of the rapture and a lot of people have a problem with this doctrine because in their minds it's just too fantastic They're used to God intervening in soft and subtle ways here and there. The idea that God would intervene like he did in the days of the Bible is a concept that they've come to believe just doesn't happen anymore. And others just don't like getting into this because deep down inside, if they were really honest with themselves about this, they really don't like the idea that God would intervene in such a way that they would have no control over that intervention. They like keeping God at a distance. They like praying to him. They like him answering their prayers. But the idea that a day is coming in which God is literally going to go beyond whispering in their ears to picking them up from out of this world and taking them to a new one scares the crap out of them for some reason. So to get around it, they'll say things like, well, I don't know if I believe in any of that. The word rapture doesn't even appear anywhere in the Bible. Yes, it does. We just read it. But we read it in English. The word rapture comes from the Latin translation of this verse. In English, it's two words, caught up. We the living ones who remain on the earth shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. In the original Greek, the word is harpazo. When literally translated, it means to be snatched up or seized by force. The Latin translation of this event, the word rapture, was around for so long that it survived even after the Bible was translated into English. But if you know anyone who has a problem with that word, then just call it the great snatch or the great seize, or use the original Greek word, the harpazo. But Josh, doesn't that violate our free will? I mean, I thought we had free will. He's just going to yank us up out of here. That violates our free will, doesn't it? Well, no more than death does. And besides, when you accepted Christ's work on the cross to pay for your sins, you did so of your own free will, Right. Well, God's part of the agreement is that if you do that, then He has to spare you from His wrath and judgment, correct? We held on to that promise. That's why we wanted to get saved. If you're in Christ, we've been promised that we would never see God's wrath. The planet Earth, however, is a different story. It's destined to be seriously assaulted by God's wrath. Isaiah talks about it. Revelation talks about it. Daniel talks about it. Malachi talks about it. There's no way around it. The planet Earth is destined to be seriously assaulted by God's wrath. And the Bible calls that day the great and terrible day of the Lord. Man, doesn't that give you goosebumps? That day's coming too. It's also scheduled. But if God means what he says about making sure that we who are in Christ never see God's wrath, then he has to get us out of here before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, right? So what day comes before the great and terrible day of the Lord? The day that Jesus just called the last day. But you notice something that's kind of neat here, and I've never thought about this until now. When we think of the rapture, we normally think of it as something that only happens to Christians who are alive on the planet Earth. We don't think of the same thing happening to the Christians who are in heaven. Because they're already in new hardware. They're already living beyond the grave. But their new hardware, as advanced as it is, it's not their resurrection hardware. So the hardware that they're in is temporary too. Destined to be replaced by their resurrection bodies on the last day, the day of the Harpazo. These Thessalonian Christians, they were well taught about the Harpazo. And they understood exactly what was to happen. And they looked forward to it. But as time went by, The Thessalonian Christians were becoming depressed because others who were looking forward to the rapture with them had now passed away. So that's why Paul tells them in his letter. He says, hey, I wouldn't have you to be ignorant about this, brothers. When that day comes, all those in Christ who have fallen asleep in death will the Lord bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. All Christians are going to experience the rapture, folks, not just the Christians who are alive on the earth. All Christians are going to be present for that event. All Christians are going to receive the resurrection bodies that day. And if you ask me, the Christians in heaven are going to have more fun because we don't have a clue when that day's coming. They don't either, but they'll know about it before we will, because they're going to be carpooling with Jesus when he makes the trip from heaven to the stratosphere of the earth to pick us up. Can you imagine their anticipation? Oh boy, today's the day. Josh doesn't know what's coming, but today's the day. Right now he's drinking coffee. He has no idea what's fixing to happen. we're coming. So anyway, whenever you hear Jesus use the phrase, the last day, this is the day he's talking about. So let's go back to keep this in context. Let's back up to John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says, all that the father gives me shall come to me. And him that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The word "sees" there, in the original Greek, isn't talking about visual eyesight, but contemplation, comprehension, understanding, mentally grasping, and seeing with the eyes of faith. The Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said to each other, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we both know? How is it then that he says, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said, Murmur not amongst yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me, draw him to me, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now in the context of this chapter, folks, why does Jesus say that here? It's because the people who are grumbling right now, they believe in the Father. They believe in God, but they don't recognize Jesus' authority. They feel like he's assuming too much of himself by calling himself the bread which came down from heaven. So Jesus is responding specifically to their grumbling and saying, No, I'm not assuming anything. The Father's in on all this. As a matter of fact, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him to me. And I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, quote, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that has heard and has learned of the Father comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father, except for he which is of God. He's seen the Father. I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. Notice the tense of that word, folks. Has. He who believes on me has eternal life. Present tense. If you can lose it for whatever reason, then Jesus couldn't have called it eternal life. Eternal life that can be lost isn't eternal. And you certainly can't say you have eternal life if there's a risk of losing it. It's not yours if it can be taken away. Let's keep moving. Jesus says, he that believes on me has everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. But this is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus right here is showing us that not only does he already know about the cross that's coming he's volunteering for it and not only is he volunteering for it he's talking about it with pride folks this is awesome he's not talking about this with fear or shame he's proud of this he's saying yeah that's right that's why I'm here your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they're dead but this is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat of and not die I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. But whosoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life now, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I dwell in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so is he that eats my flesh, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate and died, but he that eats of this bread shall live forever. Folks, he keeps saying that over and over again, came down from heaven, came down from heaven, came down from heaven. In verse 33, he said, the bread of God is he who comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. In verse 38, he said, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will and purpose, but to do the will and purpose of him who sent me. In verse 41, he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 42, I have come down from heaven. Verse 49 and 50, he said, your forefathers ate the manna in the wilderness and died. But this is the bread that comes down from heaven that a man may eat of and not die. In verse 51, he said, I am this living bread that came down from heaven. And in verse 58, he said, he that eats my flesh, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate and died, but he that eats of this bread shall live forever. You know, the way he kept repeating himself, you think he was really trying to drive the point home, you know? And that's the last time he uses that phrase, came down from heaven. I wonder how many times that makes. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six. Well, what do you know? Seven. What a surprise. Folks, in this little spell here, Jesus points out the contrast Between the manna and himself, the bread of life. The manna was a gift of God through Moses. But the bread of life is a gift of God directly. The manna was given temporarily. Once they entered into the promised land, it stopped. But the bread of life is given permanently. The manna was just given to Israel. But the bread of life is given to the whole world. The manna sustained physical life until physical death, but the bread of life sustained spiritual life forever. So anyway, Jesus is speaking of his flesh and his blood the same way he spoke of the well of living water to the woman at the well. She at first thought that he was speaking of literal water, but he was speaking of it symbolically. The same thing's happening here concerning Jesus' flesh and blood. He's not talking about eating his flesh like a cannibal or drinking his blood like a vampire. He's talking about his upcoming crucifixion on the cross where his flesh will be pierced and his blood will be shed on our behalf. The only way to heaven is by embracing that horrible act as payment for our guilt. And folks, we don't just acknowledge Jesus' death on the cross. We boldly proclaim it because it's the only means of our salvation. With pride we boldly proclaim and acknowledge that our sin debt has already been paid for in full, not because of any merit on our part, not because of any goodness that's in us, but because of Jesus' flesh and blood offering to the Father for our sins. That's the only way. But notice verse 60. Look at this. It says, therefore, many of his disciples, when they had heard Jesus say this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can bear to hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he says, does this offend you? What if you see the son of man ascend up where he was before? Folks, he's getting bold with them now. He's been telling them that he came down from heaven, right? He voluntarily came down from heaven so that they could eat his flesh and drink his blood to give them eternal life. They couldn't stand to hear that. So he says, does this offend you? What are you going to do when you see me ascend back up to heaven? So he's just prophesied his death and his resurrection. And he says, it's the spirit that quickens. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed and who they were that did not believe and who they were that would betray him. And he said, that's why I said to you that no man can come to me except it were given unto him of my father. But from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Now, folks, don't confuse the word disciple with apostle. This isn't talking about the 12 apostles who were also disciples. There were 12 apostles, but there may have been hundreds of disciples following him around. But here, Jesus speaking of his flesh and blood weeds out the counterfeits. And you know, the same is true today with all groups of faith who claim to be Christian. If you want to weed out the counterfeits, bring up the blood of Jesus and watch what happens. And as they're grumbling and walking away, Jesus exacerbates it even further by saying, that offends you, that's nothing. Wait till you see me resurrected and ascend back up to heaven. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that just do not believe. That's why I said to you that no man can come to me except it were given unto him of my father. But after hearing him say all of that, it says a lot of them followed him no more after this. This was just too much. Verse 67, then Jesus said to the 12, will you also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve? See, Jesus is saying, I knew you'd stick it out. That's why I chose you. You all had free will. You could have said no. But I knew of your faith and choices before I came. So it's no coincidence that of those who remain are the twelve that I picked out, huh? So he probably said that with a smile on his face, folks. But look how he ends it. He said, Have not I chosen you twelve? And one of you is a devil. Ooh. Verse 71 says he spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he that would eventually betray him, being one of the twelve. Jesus just raised the bar. He's now openly acknowledging that one of them, without saying his name, one of them will eventually betray him. Whether right or wrong, good or bad, all of it was prearranged before the foundation of the world. Even the one who would betray Jesus in the end. Did Judas have free will? Yep. So is he responsible for what he did? Yep. But Jesus knew that he would betray him before he came. And he chose him because he knew he would eventually betray him. The paradox of predestination versus free will goes away once you realize that the paradox only exists from inside the time domain. Outside the time domain, it all makes sense. Everyone is given free will, free responsibility, freedom to choose. But God, being outside time, knows what all of those choices are going to be in advance. So he threads history like a quilt around all of those choices so that his will is fulfilled in the end. That's why Satan can't win, no matter what he does, because unlike God, Satan doesn't know the end from the beginning. Satan is part of the creation. We forget that. Satan's physics are different than ours because he's an angel, a fallen angel, but he's still part of the physical creation nonetheless. And that creation was not created until after both the Father and the Son planned the cross, sealed all those who were found to be in Christ, planned the rapture, planned the great tribulation, planned the millennial kingdom. All of it was carefully threaded like a quilt before Genesis 1 verse 1. That's why Satan can't win. No wonder after 6,000 years he's so psychotic. 6,000 years he's been trying to derail God's plans, but he can't. God's always a step ahead of him. Satan knew that Israel was prophesied to be reborn in 1948. Because in Daniel, there's a mathematical prophecy. Don't ask me to go through the math with you. I've done it once and haven't done it since. Don't know if I could do it again. And to be candid with you, I had Chuck Misler's help. But I saw it with my own eyes. Mathematical prophecy in Daniel foretold that Israel would be reborn on May 14th of 1948. Well, if I can see it, and if Chuck Misler can see it, Satan saw it. And he's had thousands of years to see it. So he knew it was coming. He knew Israel was supposed to be reborn on May 14th of 1948. So, 20 plus years before 1948, Satan went to work on a man named Adolf Hitler to make him his tool to wipe out the Jewish race so that God's plans to rebuild Israel couldn't be fulfilled. And for nearly two decades, it sure looked like Satan was in complete control. Hitler gained power. The Holocaust took place. He went to war against the whole globe. But in 1945, just two years before 1948, Hitler lost the war, committed suicide, and World War II was over. And it was because of the Holocaust that the Jews were given back the land in 1948 to begin with. Don't you know that drove Satan nuts? God used Satan's efforts to stop his plan, to bring about his plan. And it's been like that between God and Satan for 6,000 years. You'd think he'd give up, but he won't. And the closer we get to the end, folks, the more insane Satan becomes. That's why, as Christians, we really need to be sticking close to the word, because that's our protection, that's our sword, that's our spiritual armor, and it's our nourishment, the bread of life. We're going to stop it right there, folks, and next week we'll continue right where we left off. Until then, we're out of here. Take care.